Good morning, everyone. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day. Yaren, she is quirky, intelligent, and really, really devoted. Appreciate her so much. Yaren, come on up and tell us your story. Hello, everyone. My name is Yerin Yang. I was born and raised in South Korea. I grew up in a very traditional Korean family. Traditional Korean culture is very male-centered, and my father was the official family name carrier of one of the young branches of the family. My father had the responsibility of holding worship ceremonies for our ancestors, maintaining our ancestors' burial sites. These responsibilities are passed down to my father's son. To me, these duties are nothing but a lot of work and impose a financial burden upon the family. However, in traditional culture, it is very honorable. Because of this, my mother had huge pressure to give birth to a son to carry on the tradition. I do have an older sister, so when I was born, it was a huge disappointment as everyone wanted a baby boy. But eventually, my little brother was born a couple of years later. This really took away the pressure from my mother. Growing up as the middle child, as a girl, in, the in this type of family was like being a free agent. My sister was the firstborn, so she was special and got everything new. My younger brother was the crown prince, as he would be taking over the family responsibility from my father. So I tried to earn my status by being useful. Maybe that's where my gift of serving originated. In my free time, I just hung out with the neighbor kids and did whatever other kids typically do. One day, one of the kids I was playing with said that if we go to church, we would get free boiled eggs. I love free boiled eggs. <laughs> so a group of my friends from the neighborhood went to the church together. The church we went to was on the second floor of a commercial building in the middle of a market. At the entrance of the big room, there were hundreds of children's shoes piled up. We took our shoes off and entered the big room. There were already many kids inside sitting on the floor and waiting for the program to start. We heard the story of Jesus. We played Simon Says, and finally there were boiled eggs. <laughs> we drew crosses, hearts, or wrote Happy Easter on the shell of the eggs. That day, I heard the story of Jesus for the first time. He knew my name before I was born. He died for my sins, sins that I didn't even realize that I had committed. And he rose from the dead. After the service, we were allowed to take eggs home, even though getting egg free eggs was the initial reasons for my visit to church, I didn't eat the eggs immediately. 
I thought to myself that the egg must be a symbol of being reborn. After that Easter, I found a church nearby my home and attended regularly. I especially loved Sunday school. If you recall my introduction earlier, my family worshipped our ancestors. At least once a month, our extended family would gather to worship ancestors on the anniversary of their month, their death. We prepared a lot of food for the ancestors, and after the ceremony, we would eat at the after party. We also set a separate small table for the spirits, spirits who did not receive any ceremonies from their own descendants. After I became a Christian, I continued to help my parents with the ceremonies, and during the ceremonies, I prayed to God. I asked God for forgiveness for my participation and thanked God him for forgiving me. One of the reasons my father disagreed with Christianity was that it went against our traditional beliefs and the ceremonies. My parents knew that I was attending church, but they didn't comment on it. I continued to attend church, pray to God, and also helped with the ancestor worship ceremonies as long as I lived with my parents. Meanwhile, I had always been interested in Chinese philosophy and wanted to go to school in China. However, as my parents were very strict, I knew it would be a miracle if they allowed me to study abroad. One night, my father had a nightmare. In his dream, he was in China for business and he couldn't understand Chinese. So he was extremely frustrated and woke up in a sweat. Next day, he decided to support me going to China to study. <laughs> in February 1994, from the day I left my parents' home alone, I felt God's presence every more strongly, even more strongly in every step of my life. There would be another storytelling. That month, three months after I left home, I received, a I received a letter from my father. He said that he accepted Jesus. My father accepted the father as his father. My father was an exceptionally intelligent and rational person who studied Christianity as a branch of philosophy but he had clear reasons that he did not like Christians. I thought he would be the last person on earth who would become a Christian. According to my mother, my father felt quite lonely after he lost his story listening buddy, me. <laughs> so he started to spend more time with an old friend of his who was a Christian, and he finally accepted Jesus. As my father was already quite influential in our family, many people around him also became Christian through him. He didn't abandon the tradition of family gatherings to commemorate our ancestors. Family members still gathered, but instead of worshiping ancestors, we gave thanks to God for family and sang hymns. Of course, there was still a lot of food afterwards. 
God works in mysterious ways. Even when we don't see it and feel it, he is always working within us. And he reveals his works to us in his time. Thank you for listening to my story. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Please follow along in your Bible or using, use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 from the New American Standard Bible. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentile who do not know God, and that no one transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be with you today. Uh, do you know that St. Patrick was kidnapped? He's not Irish, and he's not, he wasn't a Christian either. And then he was kidnapped by the Irish, and then uh, he had a dream uh, to escape, and he believes that God told him to escape, so he did. And then he went back to his country, and then there he uh, studied theology, became a Christian, and then came to Ireland as a missionary. And so that's the story of St. Patrick today. And uh, I'm, I know that not every one of you are wearing green, but you are green with envy at my green tie, so you're all good. I'm wearing a suit because I did a wedding here yesterday, and the suit was laying in the chair already, so I just put it on. No, no other reason. So we're going to, I thought and I, we were going to have a PG-13 talk about sex, sex and sexual ethics today, but as I dove into the topic, I realized it was going to be more pg 13, or even like sort of NR, like a documentary. And so you don't have to brace yourselves for uh, Peter being weird. I mean, this topic is, um, I mean, that's not true. Always, Peter will always be weird. <laughs> not extra weird today. <laughs> I think there's something so fundamental uh, as you sort of drill into what life is about, including uh, sex, you realize it's really more about God than anything else. And I want to show you that today. And so we are going to apply the lessons from the scriptures to sexual ethics. And I think the scriptures have a different ethic for us than anywhere else. And so I hope you come away with a conviction in your heart, but also convinced in your mind that what you hear today is true. Whether you are a believer in God or Christ or not, the logic of this should ring true for you such that you walk away uh, thinking about it. And here is basically what I'm going to talk about today. That the ground of logic, 
meaning the foundation of logic about the ethics that we're going to discuss today, or about ethics in general, is about justice and stewardship and purpose. And at the center of these words is this idea that we have come to call God. That there's a kind of origin, a single point of origin, a singularity, if you will, from which logic and reason and philosophy emerges. There is a way to think about ethics that is beyond sort of the religious customs and the religious culture that we have come to understand as Christianity. There is a, I think, a real powerful, undeniable, in my mind, flow of logic, a science almost, that tells us how we should behave in the world. I have come to believe the world without God will always fail at ethics because they are forced to, to talk around the power and person of God, who is the ground of being and the ground of logic. He is the substance of what we know to be truth, the imperative that makes ethics what it claims to be. I uh, searched for the best description or definition of ethics that I can find, and it comes from um, uh, England, and I'm going to read it for us, and it's kind of comprehensive and therefore complicated. I'm going to boil it down for us after that, but I want you to get, get the gist of it, so I'm going to read the whole definition uh, to you. At its simplest, ethics is a system of moral principles. They affect how people make decisions and lead their lives. Ethics is concerned with what is good for individuals and society and is also described as moral philosophy. The term is derived from the Greek word ethos, which can mean custom, habit, character, or disposition. Ethics then covers the following dilemmas. How to live a good life, our rights and responsibilities, the language of right and wrong, moral decisions, what is good and bad. Our concepts of ethics have been derived from religions, philosophies, and cultures. They infuse debates on topics like abortion, human rights, and professional conduct. Philosophers nowadays tend to divide ethical theories into three areas. Meta-ethics, normative ethics, and applied ethics. Meta-ethics deals with the nature of moral judgments. It looks at the origins and meaning of ethical principles. Normative ethics, then, building on the foundation of meta-ethics, is concerned with the content of moral judgments and the criteria for what is right or wrong. Applied ethics, also found on meta-ethics, applied ethics looks at controversial topics like war, animal rights, and capital punishment. And so the main gist that I want you to walk away from this reading is that ethics is not a subtopic that you study when you first go to college, but it is the very way in which you live your life every day. You may not call it ethics. You may not experience something that you characterize as ethical dilemmas, but every time you make a decision, every minute of your day, waking day, you are making ethical decisions. You live by certain principles and assumptions. You have some moral reasoning that's taking place. 
You don't realize it. And so when we are talking about ethics, we are talking about a way, the way a human being should live and walk and move. So when we talk about ethics, we are talking about life itself. Here is my sort of uh, dumbed-down version of what ethics is. For my own self, I wrote this. Most simply, ethics is the application of morality. So morality is less tangible, and it's thoughts about what is right or wrong. And then ethics is the application of that, right? What is right and wrong always needs a point of view. I'm going to pause there and give you a chance to catch up to that thought, that assertion. Are you right or is she right? (laughs) Is she right or are you right? He said, she said. With every story, there are always at least three stories. There is what he said, there is what she said, and then there's what really happened. And so to determine what is right or wrong, which morality is about, on which ethics is founded, you always need a particular point of view. What feels sincerely right to you can be utterly hurtful to somebody else. Have you ever been been at the scene of a car accident? Therefore, all viewpoints we conclude as fellow human beings who see basically from the same plane, we say that all viewpoints are subjective. And if you claim this to not be true, then you are saying you are above the human race. Someone is above the human race, and so we say God's viewpoint is the only one that's objective and absolute. Because he alone is the authority, the judge. If you are not the judge, and you cannot be the judge because you see on the same plane as everybody else, to whom do you look up to? What bench do you stand before? Who holds the gavel and says guilty or innocent, good or bad, right or wrong? Whose viewpoint is that? And so as you think about Ethics, and ethics are absolutely required for us to be a society. You have to go to morality. And to go to morality, you have to understand what is right or wrong. And to understand what is right or wrong, you need a judge. And Christianity asserts that God alone is the authority, is the judge. Nobody is allowed to judge. And the scriptures teach, thou shalt not judge. You might accidentally be right, but it doesn't matter what you say because you don't have the authority to say what I say is the right thing. Only a judge can do that. Right? And so that is the sort of the logical flow of where ethics comes from, in my opinion. Let's do a little Bible study and we'll see how this comes together and how it applies to sexual ethics. I didn't want to do chapter 4, but this is the uh, chapter that was assigned to me by me from two years ago when I planned the sermon series. True story. I do two years of planning at a time, and so here we are. (laughs) I forgot why I chose this. 
And I wanted to squirm out of it, but given our cultural moment, I can't imagine I'm going to have a more timely moment into which I can speak biblical truth about sexual ethics. And so I'm going to read it for us again, and we'll do a little Bible study. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So that he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Notice we are talking about sexual ethics in these verses, but what does the passage start with? For this is the will of God. Notice you cannot talk about sexual ethics. Behavior, which draws its instructions from the ethics, which is built on morality, which at the core of is the view of God who is the lone authority. So we always have to go to, what does God think about this? The will of God really, really matters. And notice, to underscore this point, Paul goes also to the contrasting group of people, the Gentiles, who he says, do not know God. And if you do not know God, it leads to what he calls transgression and defrauding. And so God has to be the center of an ethical world. That's number one. It's the first thing we learn from this passage. The second thing I want you to notice is the word sanctification. I've underlined it for us. It appears, I think, three times. Do you see that? Sanctification. Now, as a good American, evangelical Christian, when I think about the word sanctification, I immediately usurp the original meaning, and I make it personal and about me because this is what americans do we are individualistic consumeristic and my faith is about my self-improvement plan i want to self-actualize i want to be the best peter i can be i want to grow i want to mature i i i i i that's how i understand sanctification isn't that how you understand it if you think about it right If you are a Christian here and you know the word sanctification, the way you uh, work it in your mind is it's about my growth. It's about my personal discipleship plan. These are some of the Christian jargons that we use. That's not what the word sanctification means. The word sanctify or sanctification in the Greek is a word that means to set apart, to separate out. And so later on, there's a fourth version of the word sanctification. And the last, uh, fourth to last word there, Holy Spirit. The word holy is the same root word. And it also means a spirit that's different. There are many, many spirits, but the Holy Spirit is unlike any other spirit. It's completely, utterly different, set apart. That's the Holy Spirit. And so God's will for me is that I be set apart For his purposes. And so the word sanctification means not the process of Peter becoming a better Peter for no reason at all. 
but it's really Peter becoming a better Peter so that he can serve the purpose of God in his life better. Sanctification is about purpose. Now, we as good Americans are hungry for meaning. We want to know why, for what. The big meta-narrative question that we ask of ourselves is meaning. And the scripture says meaning is not about meaning. Meaning is about purpose. And a purpose cannot be self-assigned. Somebody else gives you purpose. Something else. So let's say you join the military. One of the big reasons people go there is because they want to experience a sense of purpose. I have a mission. I exist beyond my own life. That's why I'm willing to risk my life. Because my life is not about me. And when you make it not about you, you experience purpose. And when you experience purpose, then you have meaning. That's why the verse begins with, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, your purpose, your meaning. And if the purpose of your life cannot be self-assigned, who assigns it? It's God. God is your creator. It all begins and ends with God. He made you. And he assigned a purpose or a will for you. And the reason you are being sanctified, set apart, is for this purpose that God has for you. So, the foundation of ethics is God's purpose for you. A deviation from this purpose is what here Paul calls a transgression. Since God owns you, since you belong to God, he created you, he has every say-so about what you do and how. That's your meaning. You can't have meaning without understanding purpose, and you can't have purpose without coming to terms with the fact of God. Deviation from this purpose is a transgression against your master, your owner, your creator. This word transgress is different than the word sin. They're often used interchangeably. There are three words for sin in the Bible. This is the second one. The first one, sin, it just means to miss the mark. It's an archer language, and it just means that you shot an arrow and you made a mistake. You miscalculated. Something went wrong. Maybe you sneezed. Transgress means you know. You know and you know and you know and you willfully did the other thing. And so here, Paul says, you have a purpose. God made you for a reason. This is God's will for you to be set apart for him. But when you live for yourself, that is not just a miss. That is a sin. That is a transgression. Because fundamentally, primarily, the first order of your life is that God is God and you are not. He made you. You did not make him. God doesn't care if you believe in him. Your belief in him doesn't change the fact that he made you. That's the first order. So living out this purpose 
which God alone can have for you, is what I call a stewardship. You have a responsibility. It means that you are accountable. I want to add a little more strength to this, and I'm, I'm not using it in the way that we normally use this phrase, but the phrase is fiduciary responsibility. Definition is a legal obligation of one party to act in the best interest of the other. We have, as God's purpose for me, God's purpose for you, our fiduciary responsibility before God is to be good stewards of each other. This is why we exist. A deviation from this is a transgression. God's will for you is that you understand that you exist not for yourself, but for the care of the other people that God has put into your care. Amen. This is the foundation of sexual ethics. This is how Paul applies it here. The particular context of uh, this letter was written for men who are cheating on their wives and on their best friends. This is the context. And so he says how to possess his own vessel. Be a steward of your spouse and don't defraud your brother. You're sexually transgressing. And the reason you're doing that is you're forgetting that you are to live for God and not for yourself. God's will for you is to be a good steward of the people that God has put into your care. And rather, instead, you're transgressing that by saying, what do I feel like? What do I want? What do I need? How do I make this whole situation about me, me, me? And not about them, not about God. This is the sexual ethic that is being violated. I'll take a really, really uh, sort of crass example, but I just I have this on my brain because I just watched Leaving Neverland, which is the a documentary on HBO about Michael Jackson and the uh, scandal that uh, led to the end of his life. <clears throat> if you are a parent or if you are an adult with the responsibility, the stewardship of a child in your care, you have to ask yourself, what is my role? And if you are a parent, you have to ask, if this child does not belong to me, to whom does this child belong? This child is just another human being like me. But they are in a weaker position relative to me right now in earthly terms. And I have a job to do. And this job was given to me by God himself who made both of us. And so I have to ask the question, what is my role in this child's life? And if I act in a manner that's consistent with that answer, then you are being a good steward of that opportunity of that job. You are saying yes and amen to the fiduciary responsibility, the legal obligation You've been entrusted with a child. So any deviation from that role is a violation of the ethic under which God has created you to live in. You're deviating from the will of God. And so sexual ethics is not about the rules, but it's about the purpose. And the rules emerge as a way to help us think about the ethic 
but the ethic itself is grounded on the principle with God as the cornerstone and you as his servant. Let's take another example, dating. If you are dating, I get this question a lot. What am I allowed to do? If you are a boyfriend and you have a girlfriend, you have to ask, why do I exist in this young woman's life? Why? If your answer is, my role, my job in this woman's life is to exploit her, to objectify her, and to use her to gratify myself, if that's your answer, go for it. You will answer to God. What is your role? If you want to know what young people today, the sexual ethic they are living in, I dare you to Google hookup culture. And then I want you to read or listen to some interviews of the young woman in college, the aftermath of hookup culture. Not one of those interviewees say, I really feel so, so loved, so seen, so valued. I really feel that these young men in my life have asked the question, what is God's purpose in this relationship, in this moment, in this, at this party, in this opportunity. And they really answered God's call on their life in the way they acted towards me. They didn't exploit me. They didn't objectify. That's not what you read. The alternative out there is not practicing any kind of ethic. I agree, there should be rules and regulations that help us to grasp this. But at the core of it, They're missing this idea that this young girl is God's daughter. And anytime, anyone who comes across her has an opportunity to be God's steward of her. God is creator. Definition of right and wrong, the one unifying theory of the universe. He determines purpose. He is purpose itself because all purpose derives from him. Divine power or authority is loaned out to human beings for the care of other human beings in structures like families and churches and schools and governments and workplaces and dating relationships All structures are mimicking and channeling God's power. Animal and human hierarchies and pecking orders exist because of the flow down of God's authority. Because all life is a stewardship. You are responsible. You are answerable. You are accountable. You will give an account for the roles that you played and the manner in which you behaved according to the role that God gave you. This is what Paul's teaching here in chapter 4. Oscar Wilde said, everything is about sex except sex. Sex itself is about power. And scripturally, that's true. That you have power. That God has loaned you so that you can use that power for the good of those he has placed in your care. And sexual ethics is a derivative of that. Which is why in Christianity, 
your so-called faith, my so-called faith, boils down to Micah 6.8. If you ever want to know why you are a Christian, here it is. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. That is, don't transgress the fundamental dynamic that he is God and you are his and he has a job for you to do. That's justice. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is why of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, a huge chunk of it is about power and stewardship and justice towards the stranger, the orphan, the widow, and the poor to those who have less power than you. Here's a quote that I like. Nothing acknowledges your belief and trust in God more than your practice of justice. For Christians, religion is a stewardship because the practice of love is a stewardship. You don't have rights. You have a God who has a purpose for you. This is the context, the only proper way to think about sexual ethics. And that's why this is a different ethic than the one the world offers. The ethic of the world really functionally is about what you can get away with. That's why the conversation is about consent. It's really saying, could I get away with this? Will you let me get away with this? Are, are you going to sue me? Are you going to press charges? That's the best conversation the other ethic has to offer. This is the way better ethic. This is the only ethic that is ethical. Christianity, if you are a Christian today, is not the perverted American brand which focuses on the individual, personal, emotional self-esteem of ethics. It's not about how you feel about something. But it's relational. It's communal. It's about the one-otherness that's so often found in Scripture. I wonder, you know, Americans lead the world in what uh, sociologists call confidence. I think it's a kind of shamelessness that results from being void of ethics. Behind me, is a screen uh, of 263 names of celebrities, politicians, CEOs, and others who have been accused of sexual misconduct from April 2017 to January 2019. And that list is longer today as I speak. These are all men, and Paul is writing to men in chapter 4 here, all men who are unjust. They transgressed. Who they, these men did not understand that the power they were given was meant to be a stewardship of that power, to be used for the betterment and for the care of those below them rather than the abuse of them. And if you, I don't care what you personally feel about the particularities of the Me Too movement, but in general, it's a calling out of the abuse of power of a transgression against God himself. 
All violation of stewardship is an injustice. All injustice is a transgression against God. All transgression is a breaking of your purpose. So I want to close with application here. Uh, there's various areas that we can uh, apply this. The first one that came to my mind was marriage. I have this conversation a lot with many of you in the church. And I want to address this one particular angle on sexual ethics and marriage. The Bible talks about this also. It's about how to practice sex between married couples. If God is calling you to withhold sex from your spouse, then go for it. Or conversely, if God is calling you to demand sex from your spouse, then go, go for it. If that's your role, if that's why you exist in the other person's life, if it's about you, whether it's wanting sex or withholding sex. What about dating? How are you to behave? What are the rules? How does baseball get played in dating? When do you get to swing for the fences in dating? My personal rule based on theology, is in the Bible, there is no such thing as premarital sex. The term doesn't exist because in Scripture, the way you got married was by having sex. That's what the ceremony was built around. The couple will go into a tent for the first time and engage in sex, and that's, they would emerge from the tent saying, yeah, now we're married, and then celebration would commence. And so Paul refers to this. He says, don't have relations with a prostitute because don't you know if you do, then you become one with the prostitute. The way you become one is through sex. And so I've done dozens and dozens and dozens of weddings. Almost every single one of them, I asked a couple, the first time they approached me, I say, are you having sex? And I said, if you want me to do your wedding with a clear conscience, for me at least, I need you to ha stop having sex until your wedding night. Like the last time was the last time until the wedding night. And if you can't do that, I can't do your wedding. It's just a personal rule that I have. Because if you keep acting married and being married sexually, you don't need me. That's how I feel. Go to a judge. You're already married in God's eyes. Theologically, spiritually speaking, that's how it happens. And there's some acknowledgement of that even by the state, isn't there, that you could get it annulled if it wasn't consummated. And so that's my rule. Uh, that's my application of um, sex and dating. But really the broader question is, what's your role in this person's life? What's the stewardship? What's your position for? What does care of God's child mean? And then you have your rules for dating. Work. If you are in a position of power, your words... Your actions, your implications, all of these things are experienced through the power dynamic. And it's really about time men really uh, rose in awareness about this fact. And so the role that God has called you to play at work, sexually speaking, do it. Play that role. Friendships, everyday people that you interact with, you know, people who have less power than you, maybe a, a somebody who's waiting a table or somebody that uh, is checking you out at the grocery store. What's your opportunity there? What stewardship is there? What role are you to play in their life? Are they lesser than you? If you have power in that moment, what is that power for? 
And then because this is Seattle, I've talked about pets. Proverbs 12.10 says, a righteous person cares for the life of his animal. Goes on to say that the way you treat an animal is an indication, is emblematic of your relationship towards God. It's a spirituality. We Seattleites are good at this spirituality. We love our dogs. More dogs than kids. Actually, twice as many pets as children in the city of Seattle proper. So we ask in all of this, what is your role? This is, I think, the main question, the big question that answers all the little questions that we might have. In whatever position you find yourself in, why do you exist in that role? And then answer that question and then work that role. Being a husband, being a wife, being a mom, being a dad, being a friend, being a boyfriend, being a girlfriend, being a boss, being a manager, being a citizen, being a member. Why? What's your role? And don't transgress it, for it is God who will be your avenger. Because it is to him, the judge, that you will answer. You are accountable. What is good? What does God require of you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Would you pray with me? God, I lift my own self to you first and foremost, and uh, I loved, I loved uh, researching and studying this, uh, this viewpoint. So powerful and so convicting. God, I invite all of us together, each individual and us as a church, to really understand the role that we are called to play and help us to do that really well so that we can stand proud before you as a servant and you can look to us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, until that final day, until that final day, may we live by an ethic that is different. In Jesus' name.